welcome back to Innocence Advocate Stephen's Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode two, The Crime and the Investigation. Last week, I went over the crime very quickly and then delved into Stephen's mental illness and the evaluations conducted by two psychiatrists for his trial. Today, I wanted to focus on the crime and the initial investigation that was conducted and break those two components down. If you tuned in last week, then you know that Kristen was murdered on the evening of Mother's Day, Sunday, May 12, 1996. Let's take a look at what we know from that day leading up to the murder. This information is from Kristen's best friend at the time, Mara. Kristen's parents took a day trip that Sunday to check on their vacation home. Kristen went to work and then spent the rest of the day with her best friend, Mara. Both Kristen and Mara attended the same high school where they met in the nurse's office a couple of years before Kristen's death. Mara testified that during their friendship, the two of them had been at each other's houses on almost a daily basis, and Sunday, May 12th, was no exception. The two friends spent time shopping at the mall for prom. They went to the mall about 6.30 or 7 o'clock, spent a couple of hours there, and then went back to Mara's home for dinner. The girls left Mara's home for Kristen's around 9 o'clock p.m. Mara testified that nobody else was at Kristen's home when they arrived. At around 9.30, Mara received a page from a mutual friend whom they proceeded to call and speak to on the phone. Mara stayed at Kristen's home until approximately 10.30 p.m. Mara testified that while she was at Kristen's house that night, she witnessed Stephen standing outside near his bushes, and that later she heard something strange. In her account during her direct examination by the prosecutor, Mara stated that she and Kristen were conversing about prom, details of the prom, what they were wearing, who they were going with, that sort of thing, and that Kristen stopped her because she thought she heard someone call her name. Kristen asked Mara if she had also heard it, and Mara said that she was in mid-conversation and thought she might have heard something, but she couldn't really be sure, but she also knew that nobody else was home so she carried on in the conversation. She went on to explain that Kristen was alarmed and put off, but because neither of them could be sure that it actually happened, in her words, they blew it off. Obviously, the way in which questions are asked or the order they are asked is strategic. It's part of the prosecution and the defense's job to arrange their questions in a certain way. But what Mara is saying here could present an unusual picture to the jury. The girls see Stephen standing outside his home and then they hear a strange sound. This information is used to perhaps make the jury stop and wonder, was it Stephen calling her name? But we don't actually know the time frame or order that these things are happening. And we don't know when they're chatting about prom in relation to when they're seeing Stephen outside. Because Mara doesn't say, it was as soon as I heard a noise, I looked and saw Stephen. It's almost presented in the trial as if they see Stephen when they're going inside the house. But that's sort of what the prosecutor is trying to get at without having to say it directly because there's no foundation for it. In fact, if you tuned in last week, you know that it is not unusual for Stephen to be outside at night standing by his front door in the front area of his home. That's what he did every night. And you would have also heard last week that Mara stating she saw Stephen either upstairs in his window or in the front of his house happened every time she went to Kristen's house. So Stephen's behavior isn't strange in this situation, and Mara seeing him outside isn't strange. But the order of the questions is trying to make it seem like it is strange. Soon after the noise, Kristen brought Mara home for the night. Once Kristen was back home, she called Mara to tell her that she had left her wallet in her car, but that she should wait until the morning to pick it up. Mara testified that she thought of going back that night and getting it, but decided to wait because Kristen was ready for bed. That phone call lasted until approximately 10.45 p.m. Shortly after this phone call ended, neighbors heard screaming and commotion in front of the Scarabelli home. Though the neighbors were intently questioned, one even being sent to a hypnotist, they were unable to identify anyone as the murderer. What did the neighbors actually have to say in their testimonies? 
First, we have Marguerite Rizzucci. She lived on the west side of the Scarabelli home, and her bedroom was on the side of the house that faced the Scarabellis. She testified that on Sunday night, May 12th, at 11 o'clock p.m., she was sleeping in her bed when she was woken up by a loud noise, which she described as blood-curdling screams like help or rape. She jumped out of her sleep and ran to her window. She continued to testify that she cracked her window and heard someone say, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kill you. So she ran down her stairs and out her front door. She looked toward the Scarabelli home where she believed the screams originated, but she stated that she saw nothing and she didn't hear anything. In her testimony, she said that the voice screaming for help was female and the threatening voice was male. But because she didn't witness anything visual to draw further attention when she went outside, she went back upstairs and went to bed. When asked why she didn't call the police, she said that it was because when she went outside, she assumed that whatever it was was over. She didn't hear or see anything, so she guessed that the people had resolved it. Lillian DeSantis also lived with Marguerite Rizzucci and shared a similar experience from that night. She also said she heard the screams of help or rape. She was certain that she recognized the voice as Kristen's, but she did not recognize the threatening male voice. She testified that while Marguerite was running downstairs, she herself went and looked out the window. And she stated that she kind of heard a struggle, so she looked and she saw two people, but she couldn't really make much out. She couldn't tell who those people were. During her cross-examination by Stephen's lawyer, more information was revealed that put in question the memories people hold. She told the jury that before she heard any voices, she heard what she believed to be Kristen's front door opening. She was sure that the sound came from Kristen's front door. However, in her original statement to police seven and a half years prior in 1996, she stated that she heard what she believed to be a car door opening. The door discrepancy may be important because if the sound was a car door and a car leaving and another neighbor heard what they believed to be screeching tires, that would impact the case. If someone left in a car with Kristen, that would open up other possibilities for the events that took place that night. What is more accurate, her statement from the day after the murder or her statement seven and a half years later at trial? If her recollection was clear at the time of trial, and she did in fact hear the front door open, the next important question then has the potential to solve this entire case. Who did Kristen open the door for? I also found it interesting that in both of these testimonies, the women are saying that they're hearing blood-curdling screams and screams for help or rape. And now it says in the transcript, or, but these two do not sound anything alike to me. Perhaps it was all happening so fast they couldn't really be sure what they were hearing. But the next neighbor to testify didn't hear either of those words. He heard something completely different. Robert Mirabel, at the time of the crime, was living across the street from the Scarabelli family. On the night of May 12th, he visited a bar after work and arrived home shortly before 11 p.m. He testified that he parked his car, and once he got out, he started walking up the driveway toward his home and heard someone across the street yelling the word no. He said it was a female voice, and so he stopped and turned and looked, and he heard her yell again, and it caught his attention. So he thought, something's going on over there. So he walked to the end of the driveway, and he couldn't really see because the lights from the Scarabelli garage were shining in his face. So he said that he could make out one, maybe two people, and it looked like one of them was on the ground and dressed in light color, and that he heard the female voice again scream no. He said approximately three times he heard no that he remembered. So he waited, and he tried to get a better look, to see what was going on. And then he said at that point, it got quiet. The lights went out. So he turned around and went back to his house. Once he was in his home, Mr. Mirabel asked his roommate if incidents like that occurred at that house frequently. Mr. Mirabel was new to the neighborhood and renting a spot in that home. So he was not familiar with the neighbors. However, his roommate was confused and sought to clarify which house was in question. The two men proceeded to go back outside by the front door, but reported nothing unusual. 
so they went back inside and continued watching television. The following day, Mr. Mirabel went to work where he was questioned by police. Later that night, they met him at the bar and asked that he walk them through his exact steps from the previous night. On July 2nd, those same detectives accompanied Mr. Mirabel to a psychiatrist and hypnotist in New York City. The judge gave the following instruction to the jury. He said, any hypnotic statement is generally inadmissible for purposes of impeachment. The statements made by the witness under hypnotic procedure is excluded at the trial popularly. So I'm not sure why this was allowed in this trial, but in the end, it didn't matter because Mr. Mirabel's hypnotic procedure did not yield any new details from the night of May 12th. Mr. Mirabel's testimony was corroborated by his roommate. Patrice Martin lived a few houses down from the Scarabellis, and she testified that she was in her bedroom Sunday night packing for a family trip to Disneyland. From her bedroom, she had a view of the street, and she testified that she had two motion sensor lights on her garage that worked individually, and that around 11.30 p.m. on Sunday, May 12th, one of her motion sensor lights went on. She stated that you would have to go halfway up her property to trigger that light. She looked out of her window and down the driveway, but she didn't see anything. She said that the area around the street was dark. There were several questions in the trial to indicate that she couldn't actually state what made the light go off. It could have been an animal. So to assume that it was the murderer would not be an accurate assessment since there was no way of knowing what triggered that light. Robert Romano lived all the way down Cedar Road and across another main road. And he said that on May 12th at 11 p.m., he was in his garage rearranging some junk when he experienced what he described again as blood-curdling screams. He said that he stayed in his garage for a few seconds before deciding to put his dog on a leash and walk west on Cedar Road toward where he believed the sound came from. He testified that he didn't hear anything or see anything and that four houses passed his, so four houses closer to Kristen, he noticed another garage door open and that there was a Korean neighbor who lived there. He had never met him, but he said that he noticed he was in his garage, the door was open, and he was attending to whatever he was doing. And so that made Mr. Romano stop and think, well, if he's not out investigating, he's not looking, he's just minding his business, maybe there isn't anything really happening. And so he said he kind of felt foolish for having come out. So he proceeded down the block and around back to his house. Aside from the neighbor in the garage, he said he didn't witness anything in the vicinity of the Scarabelli property, which he would have walked by in his remaining walk around the block into his home. Just minutes after Mr. Romano would have made it back to his home and the other neighbors were all inside of their houses, Victor and Charlene Scarabelli, Kristen's parents, arrived home to an empty house. I need to stop here for a moment because when I was reading through Mr. Romano's testimony, what really stood out to me was this reference to the Korean neighbor, and he's not given a name. When I read that, I thought for sure this neighbor was going to come up again. How could he not? But he's actually never mentioned again. We don't have any information as to whether or not this neighbor was questioned by the police, and if he was, what he said to them. We have a young woman screaming for help, and this man is outside in his garage at the same time, just four houses away. Did he hear it? Did he see anything? How long was he in his garage? But also, from the detective's working theory, someone moved Kristen's body that night and rather quickly considering their timeline. In fact, this neighbor is one of the three houses that had visible drag marks in the driveway and yard area. To me, this man stands out. Was he alone in there? Could Kristen's body have been in that garage? I don't know, but that is information I would want to have as a detective. Did they investigate his garage? Did they have the canine search it the next day when they were roaming around the neighborhood? This mystery neighbor did not seem to be of interest to the police. Perhaps they did question him and the information was simply not presented at trial. I don't know, but I cannot let it go. I want to know what he had to say. 
And there's actually another reason I want to know what he told the police. It seemed as though the detectives did not believe my grandparents when they said they didn't hear anything that night because they were in their house watching TV. But Robert Mirabel's roommate across the street was also inside watching TV that night, which is why he said he didn't hear anything. But what about this man outside? If he said he didn't hear anything, then there clearly wouldn't be any way for the police to discredit what my grandparents said. Mrs. Scarabelli testified that she and her husband arrived home at 11.20 p.m. on Sunday night. Upon their arrival, no lights on the porch were on, the front door was unlocked, but it wasn't open. Nothing seemed unusual. She testified that her two kids living at home at the time were not home. She checked their rooms. When asked, she said that Kristen often spent the night at her friend's houses, even on school nights, so her not being there didn't strike them as unusual. Their son, Eugene, came home shortly after midnight. Kristen had left two notes. One was in the kitchen wishing her mother a happy Mother's Day, and another one was in her bedroom stating that her friend Mara would be stopping by in the morning. Normality circled the home as nothing was missing or in disarray. The following morning, May 13th, Kristen was still not home. Her friend stopped by at 7.20 to pick her up for school, but her whereabouts were unknown. At that time, Mrs. Garibelli called Mara, and she said she wasn't with Kristen, but she would call some of their friends in and see if she could figure out where she was. Not having received any answers, Mrs. Scarabelle began speaking to neighbors, my grandma being one of them. By 9.30 a.m., she had called the police. Over the years, there have obviously been several questions that nobody has an answer to, questions that could help piece together the story. Now, I have always thought it was strange that Kristen left those notes. It's actually less strange to me that she left the one wishing her mother a happy Mother's Day because maybe she thought she'd be asleep by the time her mom got home. But why would she leave a note saying that Mara was coming by in the morning? Why did she need to write that down if she was expecting to see her friend the next day? Was she actually planning on going somewhere and needed to make sure someone else had that information? I'm not sure, but something about that second note always just seemed a little off to me. Something else that seemed strange to me when I was reading through the neighbor testimonies was the fact that they were all sure of the exact times this happened, most of them saying it's 11 o'clock p.m., but they're all reacting within 30 seconds to maybe a minute of each other. And though they're saying they heard that initial scream, they then saw nothing and they heard nothing. That means they're also not seeing or hearing each other. Now that stands out to me because you would think that Marguerite Rizzucci and Lillian DeSantis, who live across the street from Robert Mirabel, would see each other. That they would have seen Robert Mirabel pull up and park his car at the street or maybe standing at the edge of his driveway. Or you might think that he might have looked over while he was trying to figure out what was going on and he may have seen Marguerite Rizzucci running out of her door and kind of standing in her doorway. Maybe they would have seen Robert Romano walking down the block but they didn't see or hear each other, which just makes me stop and wonder, how were they sure of the time and how are these timelines actually pieced together? All of the neighbor testimonies made me stop and wonder what the role of a neighbor is. Do they have a responsibility or moral obligation to look out for one another? The neighbors who testified stated that they witnessed screaming and commotion, and although it startled them, none of them checked on the Scarabelli home, called their home, or called the police. Even those who testified that the victim yelled help or rape and that they believed they were able to identify where the scream originated and by whom, they did nothing. They awoke the next day to the terrible news of Kristen's disappearance and ultimately the discovery of her murder, facts that must have left them in agony. If even one of them had made a further inquiry that night, they may have had the power to change this scenario significantly. Mrs. Scarabelli testified that by 9.30 a.m. she had called the police and alerted them. The police were on the scene and they remained there until the end of the day on May 14th, 1996, the day that the devastating news was received. 
Kristen's body had been found farther down the street underneath the tree. Her body had been covered with three garbage bags filled with garbage. She was naked from the waist down with her pajama pants, her underpants, and her bicycle shorts rolled up and tucked up beneath the t-shirt she was wearing. Dr. Horowitz from the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office accompanied Kristen's body to the medical examiner's office, where she spent over three hours examining the body. This examination included collecting trace evidence. She administered a post-mortem sexual assault kit. She took fingernail clippings, swabbed and combed the pubic hair, and had her body dusted for fingerprints. The result of all of this was that there was nothing foreign from Kristen, so nothing that belonged to anybody else found under her nails. There was no evidence of injury either internally or externally to her vaginal area. There was no male DNA detected. There was no semen on any layer of her clothing. There were some small blood stains analyzed on her t-shirt, but they were not proven to be connected to the crime. The following day, Dr. Horowitz conducted an autopsy and she evaluated the varying degrees of bruising and abrasions in multiple areas of Kristen's body. This would include her feet, legs, hands, lower back, buttocks, face, neck, and scalp. Kristen had noticeable injuries to her neck. An internal examination was conducted in which small hemorrhages were found on the surface of her heart, her larynx, and the lining of her sinus. So Dr. Horowitz testified to a reasonable degree of medical certainty that Kristen's cause of death was neck compression. It was apparent that the medical examiners through the line of questioning were not able to determine if the neck compression was a result of being strangled by hands or ligature. However, no suspected ligature was ever found in the course of the investigation. After establishing the cause of death for the jury, the focus became the manner in which Kristen's body was transported from the scene of the crime to where they found her body under the tree. The conclusion was that Kristen was dragged 500 feet to the end of the street. Dr. Horowitz said that the drag marks on Kristen's body were consistent with being dragged across a driveway or a rough surface. But how someone managed to murder and drag Kristen to the end of the street within such a short window and with several witnesses around still remains a mystery. The detective's working timeline for this case left little room for any perpetrator to complete this act without detection. The phone call with Mara ended at 10.45 p.m. Neighbors witnessed commotion and screaming at 11. The Scarabellis arrive home at 11.20. The motion sensor lights at Patrice Martin's house go off at 11.30. And Eugene Scarabelli arrives home around midnight. Soon after the police members arrived, a perimeter was set up along Cedar Road. There was only foot traffic allowed on the street, and this was done supposedly around 2.30 p.m. So this would have been 2.30 in the afternoon, the day that Christian's mother called the police and reported her missing. The scene investigation was underway for anything that seemed suspicious or out of the ordinary. While a series of forensic scientists conducted a collection of evidence, mapping and fingerprinting, other detectives were starting to question the neighbors and some even assisting the forensic scientists. All of the individuals working the case had been alerted that a young girl was missing and that there were extraordinary circumstances that indicated some violence or foul play was involved. Again, the prosecution presented to the jury this idea that there was an abundance of evidence that had been collected to solve the case. The jury was sitting through days, several days, and hours of detailed scientific testimony, only to learn that nothing was actually found that could scientifically point to a murderer, a murder weapon, or what actually happened on the night of May 12th, 1996. Donald Dollar and Robert Bowman, both working as forensic scientists at the Suffolk County Crime Lab, began their investigation on Cedar Road about 8 p.m. on the night of the 13th. They were briefed by detectives 
And with the information that they had, they conducted a cursory search of the front of the Scarabelli home. They didn't have much daylight, so three other detectives joined them, and they were all looking for anything they found of interest. Mr. Dollar returned the next day, May 14th, and this is at the time he's arriving before Kristen's body's found. And he was accompanied by another forensic scientist and they continued their search. By this point, there was more information that had been gleaned from the neighbors who indicated this struggle on the front lawn. So that resulted in a more thorough analysis of that area. What did they find and what were the results of the evidence that they found? After dusting the front and side of the Scarabelli home, this would include the front door, the shingles, one of the cars in the driveway, they moved from the Scarabelli home to the side of Stephen's home. So these two houses are pretty close and the Scarabelli lawn touched the driveway of Stephen and my grandparents' home. There's no separation. The fence line didn't begin until you got to the back of their homes or maybe a little bit past midway of their home. Then there was a fence, but the front area is touching. So then they moved from analyzing this lawn at the front of Scarabelli's house in the side of their home to the side of Stephen's home. That would include the van that my grandparents always parked on the driveway, which was closest to the Scarabelli lawn. They analyzed the van, a quilt that was in the back of the van, and some garbage and vacuum contents that were behind the house. But through all of this, no fingerprints were found on any of the surfaces of these items. The quilt had nothing on it to indicate a connection to anything that took place that night. Through an intensive search of the Scarabelli lawn, Mr. Dollar testified that he witnessed a disturbance in the flower bed on the side of their home. So he examined it and he found some foot impressions in the soil, which resulted in him working his way towards the grass. And he continued to search along the driveway area between the Scarabelli's home and Stevens. The flower bed was analyzed as well as a clump of hair that was found on the Scarabelli lawn and a button. Some other items collected between the two houses included a paper napkin and a small Sambuca bottle. And after all of these items were analyzed, they contained no fingerprints. The flower bed impressions could not produce a shoe size. Inside the home, the forensic scientists collected Christian's hairbrush for a later hair analysis, a pajama top for identification, and a torn up photograph from her garbage can of a young man sleeping in bed, which again, yielded no fingerprints. The forensic scientists and detectives then progressed to the end of Cedar Road to process the scene where Kristen's body was found. Mr. Dollar testified that it was difficult to process the scene and to access the body because of the location behind the large tree and up against a fence on two sides. So because of this, they determined that whoever had placed the body there had to have come into contact with the tree. So they began cutting off branches as evidence that they would later tape lift. But later analysis would indicate that the only hairs found on the branches belonged to the forensic scientists who worked the scene. Some fibers were collected from the scene as well as from Kristen's shirt and the front fence around Kristen's body was tested, but no results were obtained. In addition, near the area where her body was discovered, a pen and some broken glass from beer bottles were analyzed but there were no fingerprints. The garbage bags on top of Kristen's body were analyzed as well as the contents inside. Again, no fingerprint. The analysis of the bags indicated that they had each come from three separate houses in the neighborhood between the Scarabelli home and where Kristen's body was found. Now at the time, the garbage would have just been put out on the street. There's no sidewalk and there were no bins. Like some neighborhoods have the plastic bins that you put your garbage in. This wasn't the case, at least at the time in this neighborhood. So the garbage bags would have been just sitting on the street waiting to be picked up Monday morning. Mr. Dollar went back to Cedar Road 
on May 15th to conduct a further analysis of the drag marks he said were visible in the neighborhood. His analysis supported Dr. Horowitz's assessment that Kristen's body had been dragged from her lawn to the end of the street. Mr. Dollar said that the drag marks started on the east side of the Scarabelli lawn. They went on to Stephen's driveway and they picked up again at the driveway of house number 49 and through the driveway and yard of house number 51. He conducted tape lifts of the drag marks and though they helped the detectives piece together some of what may have happened on the night of the crime, they didn't actually prove who committed the crime. For many days, the jurors were listening to each of these items being tediously marked into evidence, and the process for them would have been long and maybe even sometimes confusing. But in the end, there was one theme of importance. The evidence did not point to Stephen as the perpetrator of the crime. With no witnesses to the murderer themselves, a community in shock and no suspects, it didn't take long for fingers to start pointing, and those fingers pointed straight at Stephen. But how is it possible that Stephen was the prime and only suspect at this point in time, which the detectives continue to state was the case? They pinpointed him as the prime suspect, and that label never changed. But they did this on the 14th before any evidence was even analyzed. While the forensic scientists are still looking for evidence, Stephen has already become the prime suspect. The only reasonable conclusion is that it was personal judgment. He was weird to them, so therefore, he was the one. It's interesting to me and also a bit sad how quickly these detectives crafted their tunnel vision. They honed in on Stephen from the beginning, and once the police do that, they hone in on you, you're going to have a hard fight ahead of you. Unfortunately for Stephen, he can't fight like so many of us. Tune in next week to hear more about Stephen becoming the prime suspect, which led to his traumatic arrest. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.